Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am giddy with excitement today. We're, we're taping this on election day, so I am full of dread, but this one-hour podcast is making me happy because my special guest today is historian Saul Cornell, who is the Paul and Diane Gunther Chair in American History at Fordham University. He went to undergraduate at Amherst, got an MA and PhD at Penn. Saul is, in my opinion, the most important non-law professor voice on the silliness and fallacies and dangers of originalism as a method of constitutional interpretation. Saul, it is so great to see you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I think you've been doing a great job uh, over Dorf Law talking about the silliness of originalism and the ultra silliness of Second Amendment originalism. Well, that thanks. And that's what we're going to talk mostly about today. We're going to talk about the Second Amendment and I want my audience to understand, especially the non-lawyers listening, and there are, there are, there are many of you from what I can tell, um, Saul is going to tell us what the real, real is the wrong word, but he's going to tell us what historians think about A, the Second Amendment, B, Heller, and C, Bruin. And I really hope you pay attention because this is an issue of history that Saul is maybe the leading expert in the world on. So let's begin with this, Saul. At the founding, what is your best um, assessment of how the founding fathers thought about the Second Amendment and gun rights in general? Okay, that's a great question. So like any historian, if you're going to understand an 18th century constitution, you have to divest yourself of the assumptions that we bring to the table, mostly without even realizing it. So the first thing to, to, to understand is that this is an age where people fear standing armies. We don't fear standing armies today. Most people probably don't even know what a standing army is. It's basically a professional army. So the founders are heirs to this tradition coming out of England where they view a standing army, a professional army, as a great threat to liberty because it can be used against the people by a corrupt monarch. So that's the first thing to keep in mind. The second thing to keep in mind is that we're dealing, unlike contemporary America, we're dealing with a world where guns are very different. So for instance, we know uh, about the era of the Second Amendment a couple of things. So most Americans, Americans were probably better armed than any other people at the time, certainly better armed than the English, but the guns people wanted were not the guns that the government thought they needed for a well-regulated militia. So basically people wanted guns that were useful for putting food on the table. And that means shooting birds with fowling pieces, which are like shotguns, or buying light hunting muskets uh, so you can hunt for meat or get rid of critters that are eating your crops. The problem is those guns are not the kind of guns you need if you're in hand-to-hand -hand combat in an 18th century ground war, because A, they don't take a bayonet, and B, when it, things get tough, you may have to use that, that, that weapon as a bludgeon. And if you have a light hunting musket, it's probably gonna crack. Whereas if you have a heavy brown best musket, uh, that's going to do the trick for you. Now, if you think about what Heller says, the, 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 the crazy decision that came down in 2008, it reversed 70 years of precedent and for the first time decoupled the meaning of the Second Amendment from the militia, which, of course, is the great balance against the standing army, which is why it's in the Second Amendment. Uh, so, let me just for the non-lawyers in the group. The Second Amendment be, in, in the audience, excuse me. The the Second Amendment begins a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, 
the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. Just want to throw that out there. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> you know, what Heller does is, first of all, it says, uh, don't read the Second Amendment from beginning to end. Start with the end and then get to the beginning. So right. read it backwards. As if the text was written in like Yiddish or Arabic <laughs> or Hebrew. You know, you go from the other side of the tape of the page. It's it's crazy. And even though it talks about the militia, it says that's not really what it's about. It's about individual self-defense, even though that's not in the text. So already originalism in the Heller variety is 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 basically conjuring up out of thin air something that's not in the text and ignoring something that's right in plain view in the text. Now, uh, Scalia, in, in, in the Heller opinion, which goes on forever, <laughs> it is really one of these long-winded, bloviating opinions, um, says, you know, the Supreme Court got the, got the meaning of the Second Amendment wrong the last time it ruled on it in the era of the Great Depression in the United States versus Miller. And he says, that's a terrible decision. Everything in Miller is wrong. They didn't do the history. But the one thing he pulls out of Miller Miller to say is correct is guns in common use are protected by the Second Amendment because that's what the whole militia ideal is about. Now, the only problem with that is, as I just sketched to you, the guns that the government wanted are these military quality weapons. The guns the people want are these guns that are useful for living on a farm. And so essentially what Scalia says is, even though Miller got everything wrong, I'm going to take this one fact from Miller that's also wrong and say that that's what the Second Amendment is about. Yet the whole purpose of American policy, if you will, was to discourage Americans from bringing the guns they had in common use and force them with penalties to get the gun that they needed for a well-regulated militia. So it gets it completely so, backwards. So let me, let me, let me have down. you pause there for one minute. Uh, Heller, McDonald, and then Bruin, the three most the three big Second Amendment cases we have, the premise kind of of all of those opinions is Americans have the right to use guns that are in, quote, common use. Right. And I hear you saying that's actually the opposite of both yes. what, the, what the Second Amendment says, well-regulated militia, and what they thought they were doing back then. Can we go back to the Standing Army for a second? So a lot of um, people think that one of the reasons Heller is wrong is what, is what and I don't, I'm asking you as an historian here, um, what the, the people were afraid of this new tyrannical federal government, uh, potentially tyrannical federal right. government. I think that's a fair statement. They were coming out yes. of King George, right? And, and they didn't want a tyranny. So they wanted, is this, is this right? They wanted to make sure the states could be armed in a way to fend off this potentially tyrannical federal government if they had to. Is that, is that about right? So that's, that's essentially right. But it's even a little more complicated sure. than that. Because, sure. because what you have is these anti-federalists, the people against the Constitution. And that's how I got into this. You know, most people get into the Second Amendment debate, have some strong feelings about guns. I got into it because I have strong feelings about history. Right. And I think about anti-federalism. And I was so, so just blown away by how wrong people could get the anti-federalists, who are the keys to understanding a lot of these founding era debates. But the anti-federalists and the federalists are different. And what you see with originalists, particularly like Second Amendment originalists, is they constantly reason from the loser's side instead of from the winner's side. So what the anti-federalists are like, we need to protect the state governments because they are the governments that will protect liberty and the governments closest to the people. Now, Madison is smart. He, he realizes that people are genuinely upset by the absence of a Bill of Rights, but he doesn't want to give control of the militia completely back to the states. 
Remember, if you go to the text of the Constitution, a militia is kind of a weird thing. The states get to appoint the officers, which is kind of a way of keeping a check on them. But basically, the federal government has almost plenary authority over what the militia can do when it's called into action, and that raises alarm. So in order to protect that, they, you know, they, they argue, and only one of the two amendments about the right to bear arms on the militia is actually included. There was another amendment that would have given control of the militia back to the states, but that's rejected by Madison out of hand. So Madison says, okay, well, one way of doing this is we'll reaffirm our principle that we all agree in that a well regal militia is necessary to security a free state, and therefore the people have the right to keep and bear arms so they can serve in it. Now, in modern America, we tend to think of rights as a strong claim against government. If you have a right, there's basically a presumption that government cannot uh, infringe that liberty without a very, very good reason. Well, in the 18th century, there's a completely different view of rights. Like if you look at the Virginia Declaration of Rights, the way it frames religious freedom is it says, you have this right because you have a duty to God. That's not how we think about liberty today. You don't have any duty to God to exercise or not exercise your First Amendment rights about religion. But in the 18th century, a lot of people said, no, no, you have this right because you also have a duty. And the same thing is true of the Second Amendment. You have this right to bear arms and to have uh, a gun because we need a well-regulated militia. So therefore, we will read what this right means in terms of this obligation. So, for instance, in one of the cases that people are are litigating now about whether or not 18 to 21 year olds can have guns under the Second Amendment as a fundamental right. They sort of cite these militia statutes, but the militia statutes are basically saying you have to do this or we will punish you. What kind of right exists in <laughs> modern America where the government gets to tell you what to do and punish you if you don't exercise it the way it wants you to. So the whole debate around the Second Amendment is backwards because people don't understand how different the founding era was. What they do is they bring their modern, mostly libertarian assumptions to the table, and they misread everything about the Second Amendment so, and about the original meaning of the Constitution. So, so Saul, um, I'm a big fan, uh, not only of your work on this, but Judd Campbell as well at the University of oh Richmond. Oh my God, and he's in, phenomenal. And in fact, Judd is gonna be on the podcast next week. So I'm having, I'm having, okay. both, I'm having both of you as a one-two punch on this. But what you just he is, said... He is, my, in my view, the best young legal scholar trying to sort out how to really read these founding era texts the way the founders read them. Yeah, I think Judd and Jonathan Ginnapp at Stanford are my two favorite young ones. Um, yes, exactly. Um, but what, so one of the things... dynamic duel of yes. constitutional history. One of the things that Judd has been big on, and, and I want to ask your opinion about this because of what you just said about the Second Amendment, is... If we really are interested in history, now you and I both know that the Republican justices are not really interested in history, but let's assume for the moment that they are or would be. Their, forget, leaving aside the Second Amendment specifically for a minute, their whole vision of rights was so different than ours because we equate, equate rights with judicially enforceable rights. I think Judd would take issue with that to some degree in his work I think Jonathan would say the founding fathers were all over their place on these kinds of issues. What is, and, that, and that the idea that the Second Amendment contains a strong right against the government, against a law that says you can't bring guns into bars, or, or 18, 21-year-olds can't own guns, or felons can't own guns, which is being litigated now, um, is, an, is a, a historical notion. Is that correct? Yes, I think you're essentially right. I mean, if you think about it, 
So the anti-federalists don't get the exact Second Amendment they want. And in fact, they're dissatisfied with it because they say, well, you say there's this right to have a gun to participate in the militia, but you haven't done anything to, to give us a means of enforcement. You're just stating kind of a truism of Republican government that, you know, reg regulated militia is a good thing. So if you think about it for a moment, the anti-federalists, the one thing they would fear more than anything else is that the federal government would interfere with state police power telling states you can't or can't do this about your laws about criminality, your laws about uh, how you're going to store guns safely. And what has happened? We have this federal government acting through a, a court that that is exercising judicial review in a way that the founders would have been alarmed by striking down state laws. It's almost the anti-Second Amendment they're enforcing, not the real Second Amendment. Yeah, the irony there is almost is almost too much to bear, isn't it? Um, almost too much to bear. Yeah, not not not, not too much to bear arms about, but <laughs> too much to bear intellectually. So it's your if if, and we'll get we'll get past history in a few minutes in terms of the Second Amendment. But if one was a sincere originalist, and if one was only looking at 1791. We'll get back. Yes. We're going to move on to 1868 in a minute because yes. in Bruin, the court specifically says we're not going to decide today whether or right. not the key time period is 1791 or 1868 when, for the non-lawyers listening, the 14th Amendment theoretically applied the Second Amendment to the states, which it never did before that. But if you are a sincere originalist and the issue is, for example, can the federal government ban felons from owning guns, or can a state ban 18 to 21-year-olds from owning guns, or can we ban guns in sensitive places like churches? Um, New York just invalidated a law that said you can't bring right. a gun to church. What would be the correct historical originalist analysis for those kinds of regulations, in your view, focusing right now only on 1791? So there's just no question about it. In 1791, both Federalists and Anti-Federalists expressly say that nothing about the Constitution will diminish uh, state police power. Now, Anti-Federalists sort of say, we're afraid that it will, and you better assure us that it won't. And the Federalists say, absolutely not. And one of the things they use, the example of criminal law and protection against assault, which is, of course is exactly what we're talking about, in the Heller context, the right of self-defense. So the idea that the states would in any way be undermined in their ability to exercise their police powers, and obviously you have to, police powers are not unlimited, but they're robust. Um, you wouldn't have had a second amendment, you wouldn't have had a constitution. So implementing the Heller vision of the second amendment back in 1791, if anyone had had this crazy view of it, there would be no second amendment. There would be no constitution. It would have been a deal breaker. So that's the so that's against the states. What about against the Fed? And, and by the way, you know, Justice Thomas has made kind of a similar argument about the establishment clause, saying that it, that it was all about limiting the federal ability to interfere with states' views on religion. So we shouldn't apply this establishment clause to the states. If he. It, I, the idea that he would say that, but then say the Second Amendment does apply to the states, that makes no sense, right? Right, of course not. Well, okay. I mean, this is the, you know, everything about originalism is selective. I mean, right. you know, which period counts, which evidence counts. You know, in, in Bruin, for instance, they make a big deal about this idea of a constitutional outlier. Well, how under the founding era's conception of federalism can you even articulate the concept of an outlier? The right. whole purpose of federalism <laughs> is to prevent the federal government from establishing a uniform 
police power or a uniform system of government across America. Which, by the way, is exactly what the court said in Dobbs last term. So the inconsistency yes, between Dobbs, the abortion case, and Bruin is, is obvious. Let's go back to 1791. What yeah. about how did they view federal interference with gun rights? So a federal law, for example, banning felons from owning guns. What would they have thought of that? So, of course, uh, if you're thinking in 1791 terms, the only place that the Second Amendment is going to apply is in the District of Columbia or in the territories, which, again, makes Bruin. Why is that? Hold on. Third. Back up. Back up. Why is that? Well, because the one thing we know about the District of Columbia is it's a federal territory. Right. And it doesn't have its own legislature. Congress is responsible for legislating. And Congress, you know, from the Northwest Ordinance on is and the Louisiana Territory, their acquisition is is regulating what's going to happen in those new territories. So the federal government before incorporation must respect the Second Amendment in only two places in 1791, in federal territories and in the District of Columbia. Wait, so I'm sorry, I got confused there. I'm sure it's my fault. If if the federal government had passed gun laws in 1791 that were restrict 795, that were right. restrictive of gun rights. Right. Tell me exactly what would the founders have thought of that? So the first thing is the only place they would be able to pass any laws about guns, except for laws re regulating the militia, would be in federal territories. So the location of their and the scope of what they could regulate apart from the militia would only uh, pertain to either the District of Columbia or places like the North. So you're Territory. saying federal gun laws at the founding would have been unconstitutional if they applied to the states? Right, because there's no there's no notion of incorporation. Okay. So how do you how and do you mesh so, that? But with the second thing is they are clearly. Um, you know, if you look at efforts to deal with things like the Burr conspiracy, which is, you know, happening out in the western part of, you know, then United States, they are not eager to have people, you know, wandering around with guns without, you know, uh, concern for the public safety. So there's in all of American law in the 18th century, there's always this balance between public safety and the right of self-defense. I mean, one of the great crazy things about this whole debate is the idea that if you don't have the Second Amendment, there's no right of self-defense. But the right of self-defense is the most fundamental right under common law. There was nothing in the period of the American Revolution that threatened the right of self-defense. John Adams makes the argument for self-defense in the Boston Massacre case, and he gets them off. So how could you argue that they were worried about the right of self-defense when in the most hostile legal case in the entire period of the American Revolution, John Adams acquits people based on the venerable and ancient right of self-defense. So, so it's not that they don't believe in the right of self-defense, it's just not threatened by anything in the 18th century. So if I understand, well, so what a lot of pro-Heller, pro-Bruin people say is that right to self-defense, which predates the Constitution, which clearly existed at common law, which clearly existed after our constitution, subsumes a right to sell, to own a gun, to use a gun, that neither the state nor federal governments can interfere with. But that's not what you're saying, is my understanding. No, no. I mean, so you, you know, our idea, and again, it's, you know, this is where Judge Campbell's work is so important and Jonathan Gannett's work is so important. There are rights that are protected in different ways. We have this idea that if it's not in the constitution, it's not a right. But... Common law is a source for many rights. There's no right, you know, to have bodily autonomy. 
Yet under common law, you know, there are obviously protections. You can't be forced to, uh, you know, take medicine if, if you don't want to, if you're an adult. So there are all kinds of liberties that the common law protects. And the idea that every liberty in the 18th century had to be protected by this new written constitution just shows how little we understand how common law worked and how little we understood how constitutionalism worked in the 18th century. Right. But so that, so then why, so then, so the pro Heller folks say that right to self-defense includes the right to have a gun for self-defense that can't be abridged by either the state or federal governments, but that's not your position. Right. I mean, because basically what you have in the 18th century, and if you, for instance, you look at uh, laws regulating firearms, which there are in the 18th century, I mean, as long as there have been guns in America, there have always been regulations of them. And they actually got more robust after the Second Amendment, not less robust at the state level. Um, so if you have a militia weapon, a weapon that's useful for the militia, that is not subject to, to confiscation if you fail to pay your taxes, nor if you're sued in court over debt. It's the only gun that enjoys that level of protection. Every other gun is like a normal piece of property. That doesn't mean it's not protected. Right. It's just normal property. It gets regulated the way any piece of property gets regulated by the states under their police power. So, you know, we have this idea that, you know, all guns are created equal under the Second Amendment and popular guns are most equal, <laughs> you know, most, you know, as most pigs are. Right. Some pigs are more equal than others. Right. But there is this kind of weird Orwellian uh, uh, dimension to Heller and modern Second Amendment jurisprudence, because, in fact, the law treated different guns differently. So so I, I want to drill down on this, so, because because actually in preparation for the podcast next week, I talked to Judd Campbell a lot about this yesterday. I want so and this is a this is a well, discussion we're about to have. I don't think the Supreme Court has really ever had the way we're about to have it even though it's accurate history according to you and Judd and other good historians. My understanding is there are some rights, the right to a jury trial, the right to right. bodily autonomy, the right to um, self-defense, that we're not going to balance public policy against, generally speaking. But those rights are extremely narrow, extremely rare. It's not true for free speech rights at the founding, right, right? obviously. Yep. And the right to own a gun is not one of those rights. The right to self-defense might be, but the right to own a gun and use a gun, according to the founders in 1791, is always going to be balanced against legitimate public policy concerns. Is that, is that right? I think that's right. I mean, the thing is, there are a couple of things to keep in mind yeah. uh, in trying to parse this. First of all, even the right of self-defense is not unlimited, right? Okay. In the 18th century, there's a duty to retreat. Right. So if we actually went back to the original Second Amendment, stand your ground laws are all off the table right. because that was not consistent with their understanding right. of, uh, of the Second Amendment. But the other thing is, and this we know from remarkable work by two historians, one is Randy Roth at Ohio State, the other is Kevin Sweeney at Amherst College. Guns were not used in interpersonal violence very much in the founding era. The rates of interpersonal violence among whites in the family era is practically Swedish, it's so low. <laughs> what there is, is horrifying levels of violence against tribal peoples. And so the idea, like there was one point in an article where I remember Randy Barnett said, it just doesn't make any sense that they were not concerned about having guns for individual self-defense. Well, if you can't get your head around something, it's a good 
sign that you're not being a good historian because the whole job of being a historian is trying to get your head around things that don't make sense to us but made sense to them so for instance pistols like 90 over 90 percent of all the guns in the founding era were long guns not pistols because pistols just weren't that useful i mean unless you were wanting to kill someone in a duel why would you have a pistol you're not going to get a turkey for thanksgiving using your <laughs> dueling pistol i mean that's just absurd so if you're worried about um you know crime crime doesn't equate to guns now crime does equate to guns but it takes too long to load a musket or you know a a uh, a pistol that is a sort of uh, black powder muzzle loading and they're not that accurate so there's the same um imperative to say guns equals personal safety in this individual sense guns do equal personal safety in this more collective sense in which we need to get the militia together because you know we have to worry about the spanish in florida or the french uh before the french and indian war or the almost constant warfare with native americans right so people are thinking about guns because the technology is different it's not until the 19th century where you get fairly cheap and reliable handguns that we have a modern style gun violence problem. So the problem so, is we're just not, the gun violence issue is just not on the table for that. So one of the things I say in my public talks about this um, is that if you want to get to the result in Heller, if you want to get to the idea that Americans have a right to own handguns or God forbid AK-47s for self-defense, the only way to do that is through a living constitutionalism approach. We can we can get there if we say judges are allowed to update the Constitution and update what the original meaning was because times have changed and technology has changed. But you simply can't get there through originalism. Is that fair? Oh, that's absolutely fair. I mean, basically, Heller becomes a haiku if you adopt a living constitutionalism approach. I mean, you know, it's basically, look, this is what most people believe in America. Therefore, let's, you know, interpret the Constitution in the same way that the Warren Court interpreted other parts of the Bill of Rights. I mean, exactly. basically what you have with Heller is a level of intellectual dishonesty and a <laughs> level of incompetence that is staggering. And essentially what is happening is the right is getting its living constitution. But they have to construct kind of a Rube Goldberg mousetrap to get there. Right. Okay. So, so, so we agree on all of that. That's 1791. Now, I've had, uh, I've moderated and been on numerous panels with Second Amendment proponents who strongly, not, again, the court has ducked this issue, who strongly believe that actually the relevant time period is not 1791, it is 1868, because it wasn't until 1868 when the Second Amendment theoretically started applying to the states. Um, right. So does all of this change with the Reconstruction Amendments? So there is an important change, but it's not the change that you're hearing from Second Amendment advocates because they're getting the history wrong there too. But there is a change and what's remarkable. So if the great uh, tragedy, if you will, or maybe, you know, maybe it's, you know, first time tragedy, second time farce. So if hell is the tragedy, you know, then McDonald becomes the farce. So in Heller, Justice Scalia decides to read the Second Amendment backwards which of course, Justice Stevens says, well, we've never done that before. And right. Find another part of the Constitution where, where we do that. Well, what, what Justice Alito does in, in, in McDonald's is almost as dishonest and intellectually problematic 
is he says, well, look, if you look at the state constitutions from the year of Reconstruction, and that's reconstructed southern states and newly admitted western states, the language of state arms bearing provisions changes radically because the militia drops out of it entirely. And he says, well, this clearly indicates that, you know, they're no longer worried about, you know, Stuart monarchs and standing armies and the threats of uh, the 17th century. They're now working out of a more individualistic idiom. And he's right about that. The problem is he cuts off the amendment in the middle of the text. All those um, 14th Amendment era state constitutions then go on to expressly say in one form or another, and the state shall have the right to regulate arms. Which, which by the way, Saul, that's so obviously what they would have done. I mean, I, I mean right. right? I mean, because th their view of state power was such that they would never have handicapped. That's maybe a politically right. incorrect term. I don't mean it that way. But they, they, right. they would not have cut the states off at their knees trying to regulate guns, right? That's insane. It is insane that uh, we would never have gotten the 14th Amendment. You know, every public defense of the 14th Amendment is this will not transform federalism except where states are denying citizens the privilege and the means of citizenship or the equal protection of the law. Right. So if you have a neutral police power based justification for a gun regulation, there's nothing about the 14th Amendment that makes that problematic. And in fact, the state constitutions expressly authorize that. So, so that, that, that makes, you, you talk about Alito and McDonald, but that makes Bruin much more problematic. So for those who aren't familiar, just last yes. June, the court said in the Bruin case, uh, I think the most anti-originalist opinion of all time, said we're not going to balance public policy, public safety against gun rights. The approach is only 100 percent historical, which I think is the only time the Supreme Court has ever said that, by the way. Um, yes. and, and, and against everything we know about both the founding and the Reconstruction Amendments and the need for states and I think the federal government come, 17, come 1868 to be able to keep the public safe. Well, exactly, because that is one of the principal problems of the Reconstruction era is you have paramilitary groups like the KKK running wild and without strong gun regulation, which was enforced, we now know from some great new social history of the period, enforced neutrally until redemption undoes Reconstruction, that without strong gun control, there is no Reconstruction. That gun control is absolutely central to the project of Reconstruction. And if you read Bruin, you would never know that. Um, and well, Bruin right. is just dishonest in so many different ways. I mean, the, the New York law that was struck down is actually related to laws that were adopted during the year of the 14th Amendment. That's when permitting comes in. And there are millions of Americans, everyone living in a major city from New York, Chicago to San Francisco, are living under some kind of restrictive public carry regime as of the 19th century. But that's just not relevant to what the court's doing because they're not interested in so, the facts. So let's, uh, because you made that point, you made that point so well and so forcefully. Let's let's extend that for one minute and and, and maybe leave specifically the Second Amendment, and talk about judges doing history. So uh, I'm a legal realist, so of course I'm going to hold this view maybe more than other law professors who are not legal realists. But it seems to me that in any case involving stakes the justices care about they are going to pick and choose the history that supports them 
and leave out or falsely distinguish the history that doesn't. And I, by the way, that's I think is true for Justice Stevens in Heller as Justice Scalia in Heller, because that's how lawyers and judges think. They don't come to the table with an open mind about what history is going to show. They come to the table with a result they want to reach and then pick and choose. So two questions. Is that a fair description of what judges do? And is there really any way that in this adversarial system we can avoid that if we make history our primary method of interpretation? So the first point, I would make one emendation to that. And that is the really transformative perspective of people like Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky and their analysis of cognitive uh, failures and, and the way certain cognitive processing errors lead us to make bad choices. I mean, that, that that's what their whole field of behavioral uh, psychology and their new sort of neuroscience-based vision of choice-making. So the old legal realists sort of said, well, you know, this is all politics. It's politics all the way down. And I'm very sympathetic to its politics pretty far down. But what Tursky and Kahneman uh, point out is it's not just that there's a cognitive processing issue here because people uh, have something called availability heuristic, right? Which is you go to the sources you know best first. So right. if you are indoctrinated in federal society propaganda your whole career and that's how you get on the high court, of course you're not going to read Judd Campbell. You're going to read Randy Barnett. Right. Uh, and the other problem is that people assimilate facts to the narrative they already have. Uh, you know, they frame issues and the way you frame issues self-selects what um, what evidence appears. And Scalia himself even says, you know, that's his famous metaphor of, you know, whenever you walk into a party, you look over the heads to find your friends in the crowd. Well, originalists are the worst offenders of that Scalia uh, indictment, which he used, you know, in terms of, you know, legislative history. But it's true of all evidence. And basically, as historians... What we are trained to do, and nobody's immune from this because the, these are cognitive processing errors that humans have because, you know, we had to deal with saber-toothed tigers once and you didn't have time to say, you know, this is one of these new saber-toothed tigers <laughs> I've been hearing about that's really cute and friendly. You're going to go with your first, you know, nah, saber-toothed tigers, they're all bad and I'm just going to run, you know, and your friend who's sort of thinking, well, maybe this one's different. They're not entering the gene pool, you know what I'm saying? Yes. They're out of it. Yeah. So basically... What, what Scalia is identifying, but originalists seem to ignore in almost every instance, is they lean into confirmation bias. And what serious scholars do is they question confirmation bias. And they're not, you know, we're not immune to it, but we're aware that that is a pitfall we have to avoid. So I want I, I I to take that point, and um, listeners of this podcast know I'm obligated by law to mention Richard Posner once every podcast. So yeah, Of course. Um, Posner was a, I would ask him, I would say this to him all the time. Roberts is not dumb. We can say a lot of things about Roberts. He's not dumb. I don't think Alito's dumb. I think he's awful, but not dumb. The originalists aren't dumb. How do you explain the disconnect between what they say they're doing and the obvious silliness of what they're doing? His answer was exactly what you just said, cognitive dissonance. These are people who maybe even in good faith, maybe, I don't really believe that about Alito and Thomas but we'll, or, or Scalia, but let's just accept it. In good faith, they've been told since law school, judges and lawyers do X. So they're going to think they're doing X, even more than the normal human being. Right. But, what they're not, but the internal perspective isn't enough. 
and they're not doing X. They're doing something very different than X. But because of all the biases you just said, they can't see it and won't own it. Is that a fair summation? Yeah, and, and they're not trained. Like, you know, it always amazes me that, you know, the first thing you do in almost any uh, field that grants a PhD is you do a literature review. And you're obligated to take account of both sides of a debate or the many facet sides of the debate. But I constantly read originalist literature and they only cite other originalists. Right. You know, and they don't do a thorough canvassing of the literature. And they're just ignorant of a lot of stuff that's essential. But, you know, if it's not on Westlaw or you can't pull it off of a database online, it doesn't exist for most originalists. Which and is that's not. Which is supremely That's ironic. Historical research. Right, which is ironic given that they, I want to repeat again, what the Bruin court said was from now on, we are not going to look at, I can't even say the sentence, it's so preposterous. We're not going to look at what interest the government is putting forward to justify a restriction on guns. We're only going to look at what gun laws were enacted in 1868 or 1791, we're not sure, and then make analogies. That make analogies part is the part that I'm going to talk to Judd about next week because he thinks right. that's rife for disaster. What's your of view course. on that? Well, yes. I mean, you know, so the first thing to keep in mind is when did the police power expire? Right. Because the premise behind <laughs> this idea that only things, you know, in our historical tradition, you can't find that in the founding era. There's nothing to substantiate it. That's why Bruin is not an original decision. The tradition, you know, it used to be history, text, and structure. That's what originalists looked at. The smuggling in tradition comes from early 20th century jurisprudence. It has nothing to do with the founding era. I mean, it's kind of this, uh, you know, Cardozo through Glucksburg kind of invocation of tradition. That's not a founding era principle. And so, yeah, I mean, the idea that somehow slave-owning judges or slave-owning legislatures in Georgia in the 1830s were allowed to make public uh, health you know, decisions, balancing the liberty interests of gun owners against the liberty interests of the citizens to live free of, of fear. But now we're precluded from that. Where does that come from? Yeah, that, it is really, I mean, I, I can't say it enough. There's no other area of, of constitutional law. Thomas nods toward the First Amendment, and that's absurd. We've never done the First Amendment that way. We've never done anything that way. And more importantly, that's not what the founders thought. They thought the police power and the public interest was always something that could pretty much outweigh almost any right. Now, that may get a little tricky with the right to a jury and, and the right to self-defense, right. but that has nothing to do with the right to own guns. Right. And, uh, you know, this is where the, the Bruin decision is just hard to get your head around because it's so clearly made up. Right. I mean, they are asserting that that somehow the police power is like frequent flyer miles. If you didn't use it by the time the year is over, you lose them. I mean, that's crazy. Right. That's a crazy jurisprudential framework. It doesn't make any sense. So if you're a district court judge now, and this is actually happening in Mississippi, it happened last, uh, right. last week, and someone is challenging this federal ban on felons owning guns. The judge throws his hands up and says, Bruin tells me I have to do an historical approach only. I don't know how to do that. He says, I'm not an historian. The Supreme Court aren't historians. My clerks aren't historians. 
And he says to the parties within 30 days, tell me whether I need to hire an historian or whether I should hire an historian to solve this case. Two, two questions. I don't really blame him, and I'm wondering if you, how you feel about his, his move. But two, is there any possibility of finding a kind of neutral historian to do this task in the context of an adversarial hearing? Well, <laughs> I don't think anyone would be satisfied that a historian could attain that level of neutrality. Okay. I mean, you do have, you know, sometimes you do find in a historical debate a consensus emerges, but that's different than saying you could go out and find an objective or neutral historian to adjudicate these issues. And, you know, the other thing is, I mean, it's so weird when I read these amicus briefs because people will claim to be historians who have no historical training. And, you know, the other weird thing is, I, if you look through Bruin, like, you know, they cite uh, an article by that was published like in the 600th best law review in America at the time, <laughs> you know, by a gun rights advocate who's never, you know, had any advanced training in history, never published in a peer reviewed journal, and the court treats that like authority. So how is it we've gone to the point where, you know, the 600th best law review, or even worse, a posting on SSRN that hasn't even come out is treated as good authority. I mean, we really are kind of in a crisis where the courts, it's not even like they don't have basic historical literacy, which oftentimes they don't. But the whole structure of legal scholarship has become so distorted that how do you evaluate, you know, writing in a world where there are like 900 law reviews, like right. where there's well, well, it's law worse, reviews it, for every law professor. It, it's much worse than that, because for those listening who are not in the legal profession, it is second year students who decide what gets published in the student law reviews, which are basically the only avenue for constitutional scholarship there is for law professors. Say there are peer-reviewed political science journals. There's one peer-reviewed uh, constitutional commentary, which I published and, and you've published, I think, a number of times. Um, but that's it. Um, but but I want to get back to the. Do you blame the judge for doing this? He's clearly trying to send a message, right? Do you, do you blame him for? Well, doing Well, yes. I mean, I think you know. I think you know. Several people have commented. He's doing a little bit of jujitsu here. Yes. You know, bait or, or hoisting their own own petard to yes. use the Shakespearean. <laughs> uh, and I think that's a useful exercise because the the Supreme Court has been invoking history or originalism as history, and it's not history, and somebody needs to call them out. I mean, you know, I think, you know, I would love to to basically uh, see what would happen, for instance, if the Supreme Court decided to hire a bunch of historians for their library, and every time a historical issue came before them, they would go to this group of historians, and they, the, the, those historians would have to publish their findings Right. And it could be sort of crowdsourced checked by professional historians. We would never get history mentioned again in the Supreme Court well, if they actually had to right. go through that kind of rigorous review process. And when it comes to gun rights anyway, one of the points I've been screaming for since 2008 is comparing a musket to the kind of weapons we have today it's not even apples and oranges. It's apples and, I want to say, basketball games. There is no relationship between the damage that an untrained person, much less a trained person, could do with a weapon in 1791 compared to the shooter in Las Vegas or the, or the sh terrible school shootings. 
So isn't it a fair question to ask, what does history have to do with this at all anyway? Because there is no analog in either 1791 or 1868 to the kind of deadly weapons we have today. Well, I mean, I think that that's certainly true enough. But the fact is, there have always been regulations of dangerous and unusual weapons, that this is not a new thing. In fact, the cases, those Southern jurists whose um, cases are cited in Heller, we give such great authority to. Again, you know, would you really think in other areas of American law to say, yeah, let's go to slaveholding judges in Georgia <laughs> and make them, you know, the foundation for our moral and jurisprudential right. system? I mean, it, right. it's just nutty on so many levels. But they were passing gun laws because they recognize that some weapons are just not necessary for, for civilized society. And there is that long tradition. And, you know, if we would just I mean, this is the problem if. If, assuming originalism can be done honestly, which I have doubts about, um, you would get the opposite result in all these gun cases if the people making the decisions had even a shred of knowledge or a shred of intellectual rigor. And instead, we've got almost it's almost like Bizarro Superman or Bizarro Jerry Seinfeld, whichever you <laughs> cultural reference is more appropriate. We've managed to create almost a backwards mirror image of historical reality. Yeah. And that's what we're talking about. Originalism is essentially created an anti-constitution. It's not faithful to the actual constitution historically. It's faithful to an anti-constitution that could never have existed. And I want to use that fabulous turn of phrase to change gears. I didn't tell you we were going to talk about this, but I'm going to throw it on you anyway. Um, so the affirmative action cases that were argued last week, if we apply an historical analysis to affirmative action, meaning we are, we are only looking at 1868 now because we're talking about the 14th Amendment. So many scholars, non some non-historians, but some historians, have made the point that there's no way either the Equal Protection Clause or the Privileges or Immunities Clause was meant in any way, shape, or form to limit the ability of the government to use racial criteria to make the previously unequal more equal. But let me finish this thought real quick. I would the, the, the signature brief on history, there are hundreds of amicus briefs, but the number one historical brief and the one relied upon in oral argument by the plaintiffs was one written by Ed Meese, of course, a former attorney general with no historical background whatsoever. And Ed Meese writes this amicus brief that I'm really afraid the court's going to adopt word for word, which relies on two law review articles. I want to go back to your law review article comment, one written by Michael McConnell, one written by Mike Rappaport, two Mikes, both friends of mine, um, neither an historian. The McConnell article is simply about Brown and has nothing to do with using racial criteria to make schools more diverse. Nothing. And the and it was savage by Michael Clamron. Yes. I mean, it's not even a very good law review article. It got completely demolished by Michael Clamron. And many others, too, by the way. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, the Rappaport article is almost even sillier, both because I think McConnell has a little bit of historical training. I don't think Mike has much, Rappaport as much at all. But more importantly, Ra the reliance on Rappaport's article is weird because he calls it a really close call <laughs> and basically <laughs> says, well, 51-49, maybe the 14th Amendment prevented it. Here's a question I want to ask you. If it truly was 51-49, it's not. But if it truly, whatever that means, but if it was, and you said to John Adams or Alexander Hamilton or anyone living at the founding, 
We have a hard constitutional question. The judges aren't sure, but they're 51-49 thinking the law is unconstitutional. The response would be, then you have to let it go, right? Of course. Well, of course, yes. I mean, the, the, you know, what we have now is sort of an imperial judiciary whose vision of judicial review is so expansive that it would have shocked even John Marshall, right? Uh, let alone the sort of typical member of the founding generation. And first of all, you're right. I mean, what does 5149 mean? I mean, you know, the first thing they teach them quantitative methods is don't quantify things that are not quantifiable, right? <laughs> right. You know, how much do you love your wife? You know, <laughs> give me a number. Right. I mean, you know, I mean, it's crazy. Right. Um, and the fact that anyone could use that kind of, it, it, again, it, it shows a fund that, that, that we may be training lawyers, but we're not training people who understand how the rest of knowledge works. Right. Yeah. Right. So and, and on that, that by the way, a... on that point, on the on the fifty one forty nine point, um, even assuming we could figure out what that even means, which of course we can't, it is one thing for a living constitutionalist to say, "I believe in judicial power. I believe in judges doing a lot of things." So if they are more sure than not that a provision is unconstitutional, they should strike it down. War in court. All right, that's we can have that debate. But for an right. originalist to say it, a right. self-identified originalist like Michael Rappaport to say 5149 is a test, that's an internally inconsistent belief. Yes? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know whether to say it's ill-informed, naive, <laughs> or or just, you know, confirmation bias on steroids. Right. But it, it just makes no sense. No one who actually understood how uh, courts worked in the 18th century or how judicial review worked its way into a concept could embrace that view. Right. I mean, it, it's just preposterous. All right. We're almost out of time. So I want to ask you one last big question. I won't interrupt, I promise. Um, you are someone who your historical credentials cannot be questioned. And you're also somebody who has written a lot about constitutional law and thought about constitutional law in the context of your historical training. In a perfect world, in Saul Cornell's perfect world, what would be the appropriate role of history in constitutional interpretation? Well, this is, I think, actually a pretty easy question because originalists mistakenly claim that it's always been originalism. We've always been originalists or, you know, in the most sophisticated version, originalism is our law, but it's not. It's never been. What has been our law is something much closer to common law constitutionalism, and that is uh, you know, you start with the text. I mean, even Lawrence Tribe doesn't say ignore the text. You start with the text, you understand what the text meant at the time to the degree that we can. Then you look at how the court has um, interpreted it. And that's how law is generally done in the Anglo-American world. I mean, you know, Larry Kramer has a great metaphor where he talks about if you were, let's say you have a blueprint for a boat and you go out at sea, and then you find the boat is about to sink and you do all kinds of things to get the boat to sail properly. And then you come back in and you're going to put the boat into the shipyard and get it, you know, repaired. Are you going to go back to the original blueprint <laughs> or are you going to include the changes that made it seaworthy? <laughs> Originalists say it's got to sink. Right. That can't be right. Right. We got to build it so it will sink again. That can't be right. And... So you're, I think what you're suggesting there is uh, the, the, the person I blog with, Mike Dorf, um, Professor Tribe, a bunch of other people, um, believe that how, how constitutional litigation has always worked 
is a pluralistic method of decision-making where you look at text, history, tradition, structure, and policy and consequences. Because the first four of those almost never lead to a clear result So at the end of the, in litigation. So at the end of the day, you simply can't get yourself removed from the real-life consequences of what the decision is going to be. And that's how law is done and has always been done. Is that a fair summation? Yes. I mean, you can read John Marshall, and it's not like John Marshall says we should ignore consequences. Or John Marshall says, you know, we should do this hell or high water because, you know, this is what we thought in 1788, even though it'll lead to, like, catastrophe. That is not John Marshall. So there really isn't much good historical evidence. And, and, you know, it's not surprising that originalists always cite the same few texts out of context to come up with the idea that Marshall was a strong originalist or Madison was a strong originalist. You know, they ignore the fact that Madison changed his view of the Bank of the United States based on reality and political reality. And and something that, you know, in a recent book I co-authored with my friend Jerry Leonard, Constitutional Politics. Madison was not an originalist. Madison believed that constitutional politics would would probably determine the course of uh, constitutional development more than anything else. So the people who are originalists always turn out to be the losers. Like the people arguing against Madison saying, no, no, we have to stick to the text. The Constitution can't be turned into a chameleon. Those are the nuts who lose the great constitutional debates. Yet this is who modern originalists, without knowing it, want us to emulate. I mean, you know, again, it's just so profoundly ignorant that, you know, in in, in Heller, for instance, Scalia says, well, let's go to the anti-federalist dissent of the Pennsylvania minority. Well, if you knew nothing about the Constitution, why would you go to the dissent, not to the majority? And why would you focus on what a bunch of disgruntled backcountry anti-federalists thought? Right. And my friend didn't know anything about the ratification debate would make that move. My friend Jeremy Tellman has written a series of articles where he claims the other thing originalists do with John Marshall specifically is they pick and choose. The picking and choosing of his work is the sloppiest jurisprudence imaginable. But at the end of the day, if you take Marshall's huge body of work, there is simply no way to come away with the idea that he was originalist and originalist. And they ignore that. Like, they ignore that point, that one of the greatest chiefs, they say, well, Marshall was misinformed, or Marshall didn't understand it, or he came later. And they're talking about the fir- one of the, the first great chief justice, and who many people think the greatest chief justice of all time, have the last word on that one. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just astonishing to me. Like, if you think about uh, what Larry Sullum says about how we should do treat constitutional communication, he calls it, he relies on a philosopher of language, you know, who basically says this is how we should approach language. Assume everyone is honest. Everyone is fully informed. Everyone is maximally concise. Well, that describes none of the texts produced in ratification. <laughs> so none of the things that he assumes define communication were actually true at the time. And the founders, if you read them, were highly skeptical readers. So they basically said, you can't treat a text as if it's transparent and if you can always assume that people are being honest with you. Just read Federalist Number 1 again. And it, it, it basically says that everything that originalists assume about language is false. Right. Or read Federalist Madison on, you know, the... The, the, the fact that language can't actually 
capture meaning the way we would want it to, and everything has to be adjudicated eventually. I mean, so we've constructed this fantasy world and originalists through this vast originalism industrial complex, which has poured millions of dollars into making this theory a thing. That's why it exists. If it had to survive on its intellectual merits, it would have been dead long ago. Well, I don't think we can say anything or leave it any better than the originalism industrial process. Uh, I'm sorry, the originalism. What do you say? The originalism industrial the original industrial complex. complex you know, everything right. from the Heritage Foundation right. to Randy Barnett's originalist boot camp, right. where they never invite the serious critics of originalism. This is the thing that drives me nuts. I just got invited to the Federalist Society annual convention to talk about Bruin, and they've got two gun rights advocates and a room filled with you know, federal society members are like, what are you guys afraid of? I, Why would you ever have a, an honest and fair fight? Well, in fairness, they are inviting me. I, I'll be there next week um, to talk about affirmative action. But it's action. two to one always. If they really want to learn something, yeah. it should be two to one against them so that they have to actually defend their position. I think the bigger point is one Jamal Green made long time ago in an article called The Selling of Originalism. Um, the originalism industrial complex is exactly what we've had, but I think you and I would agree, and this is your major contribution to my intellectual development, because I've read a lot of what you've written about this. The ultimate irony, the ultimate sadness for me is the originalism industrial complex has led really to anti-originalism in any serious sense yes. of that term. Fair enough? Yes. Okay. Yeah, the Constitution that they've given us is a Constitution that could have never existed. So yeah. how can that be originalism? We'll leave it at that. Saul, thank you so much. This has been great. Uh, you and I have never met face-to-face -face before. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.